0: I'm Rena Ninen, and this is Ask Lisa, the Psychology of Parenting podcast. It's a podcast to help parents better understand their kids. Dr. Lisa Damore, a psychologist with three decades of experience and the author of three New York Times best-selling parenting books, takes your questions. Both of us are moms ourselves, and we're eager to hear from you. So send us your questions to Ask Lisa at drlisaDemour.com. And join our community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at Ask Lisa Podcast. Encore episode one twenty five. How do we talk to kids about justice? Special guest Preet Bharara. How can we prepare our kids to understand justice and fairness? Special guest Preet Bharara, a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, joins the Ask Lisa podcast to discuss his children's book Justice Is a guide for young truth-seekers. So who are the history-makers our children should know about? Lisa and I thought, what better guest than Preet for our 4th of July Encore episode? We're joined by Preet Barara, who is the author of a new children's book called Justice Is, a guide for young truth-seekers, and also podcast host of Stay Tuned, where he breaks down legal topics in the news, Preet was actually featured on the cover of Time Magazine as one of the most hundred, most influential people in the world. He's a former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, where Preet, in that capacity, oversaw cases relating to financial fraud, public corruption, gang violence, and terrorism. I mean, Preet has taken down big sharks on Wall Street for corruption, terrorists, which makes him the perfect guest to tell us how to deal (laughs) with our toddlers (laughs) and teens. Dad of three!
1: If we could designate children to be domestic terrorist organizations, I think that would make parenting a lot easier. (laughs) I think the Congress is behind. We need to get the legislative branch to step up. I think
0: you'd have a lot of parents who would be behind that kind of legislation. There's a
1: lot of recidivism among the children of America. True. Yeah.
0: Preet, welcome very, very much. We're so excited to have you here. Thank you for being with us. Okay, so let's just get right into it. You
2: have this incredibly impressive resume how did you end up writing a children's book?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's an interesting story. I wrote a book, I, I always say I wrote an adult book, which makes it sound like- <laughs> That's not what you mean. It was pornographic, it wasn't. It, it, it show.
0: Was. <laughs> I, wrote,
1: I, wrote, I wrote a book for grown grownups um, about justice. It's called Doing Justice, and it, and it talks about sort of concepts of fairness uh, and justice, and it's not meant for just lawyers, it's meant for everybody. And I tell a lot of stories about the cases we ever saw, and, and how you think critically about decisions you make not just as lawyers, but in the workplace, uh, within your family, and everything else. And the book did very well. And the publisher actually came to me and approached me, uh, Crown, you know, uh, under the Penguin Random House umbrella. So, you know, there's really not a book uh, for children, a picture book mm-hmm. about about justice and some of these issues. You know, what do you think? And you know, I've never done it before. I said, Do I have to draw the pictures myself? <laughs> I said, No. And we we have the privilege of having to work with, uh, got, gotten the privilege to work with Sue Cornelison, who did a beautiful job illustrating. I think what's impressive about the book mostly is her illustrations uh, and then some of the words that go along with them and the introduction of some of these people to young people and their parents. But, you know, I got to thinking about it, and actually this will be one of my questions to Lisa, ask Lisa. Uh, you know, I think we underestimate the ability of young people and, and quite young people to understand what's fair and what's not what's right and what's not uh, you see kids playing a game they know right away if someone's cheating <laughs> they scream not fair you know right off the bat and so i think it's it's never too early to introduce these concepts to young people i think it's there's never been a more important time to make sure that we're raising our kids in a way that they understand issues of justice and fairness and then and then finally you know what what the book generally does is introduce courageous figures who advanced the cause of justice in various areas, both in the United States and in other countries around the world, both in the modern uh, day and also going back a century or two. Lincoln is featured in the book. Frederick Douglass is featured in the book. Gandhi is featured in the book. Malala Yousafzai is featured in the book. And, you know, lots of young people watch or read superhero comics. And And what are those about, ultimately? They're the fight between good and evil uh, and truth, justice, and the American way, if you will. Why not have a book filled with pictures of actual heroes who actually did stuff and don't have superpowers other than their own spine and moral compass. And and that's basically why we thought about putting this book out.
0: You know what I love about this book? It's not preachy. You know, it is great for all ages because the illustrations are beautiful and there's one line. Yes. So you can tell your child as much as you want about Malala and the Taliban. And then there's an index in the back. So for if you've forgotten sort of what... Happened in history in that moment. There's a little refresher for parents who can kind of learn too as you go.
1: Yeah. You forgot. I, well, we thought about this as you know a jumping-off point. And if you have a, if you have a child, and it's it's intended for people four to eight, but I think you can go older. You know, maybe even a little bit younger, because there's such rich material that, that's behind the material of the book. My own dad, when I was young, would tell stories about people that he admired, and I'm from India. I was born in India. My dad was born in what was the combination of India and Pakistan before partition. And he would tell me and my brother's stories about Mahatma Gandhi's fight for independence for, for India from Great Britain. So I remember hearing those things. Look, even in this Ukraine invasion crisis, we have the villain Vladimir Putin, who is you know increasing, increasingly unhinged, uh, backed into a corner, doing things that are not rational or reasonable. And then you have Vladimir Zelensky who may, might be in a future version of this book, given how he's acting, given how he's you know rallying the people of Ukraine and how brave he's being. So when bad stuff happens, it's terrible, but good people often, if not always, rise up to it.
2: There's um, this famous line from Fred Rogers about helping kids when they're watching a crisis unfold, where he always says, tell children to look for the helpers. And, and you've given us a book of helpers. Yeah. Um, So on the topic of Ukraine, this is high on everybody's mind right now as we're watching the images come out this month, you know, about what's happening there. What are your thoughts about how parents might use your book to help have the kinds of conversations they want to be having with their children right now?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is not my expertise of how to use a book to interpret and understand and process, you know, what is on the verge of being you know, a series of atrocities against innocent people, who are in a country that's independent and sovereign, member of the United Nations, not in any way threatening Russia. That that's hard. You know, it's hard for me to process. Mm-hmm. I'm 53, and I've had I've had a career, <laughs> and 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 had some success along the way. Um. And so, part of what you have to tell folks is is a version of what I was saying earlier. You know, when bad you no know, bad things happen, and and you have to acknowledge that. You know, wh- one of the worries I have. Given some of the movements in some of the states in this country, as people want to whitewash history, and you know this book, in I think a sensitive way, addresses bad things too. Um, it addresses slavery. You know, there's a there's a representation of slavery, of Japanese internment during World War II, and a number of other things. And you know, this is a, this is a, a a version of an answer to your question about Ukraine. I don't know how you talk about the the courage and the tenaciousness and the nobility of Lincoln and how you can understand why we celebrate Lincoln if you don't understand what slavery was, right? Mm-hmm. How you can understand um, you know, the, the power of Gandhi's uh, nonviolent resistance movement if you don't understand how bad colonialism was mm-hmm. and how bad the lack of independence was. And so in the same way, I think, you know, when you talk about Ukraine, you, you don't only talk about the bad, you talk about the courageousness of the people who are fighting for their country, who are fighting for their autonomy who are fighting for the integrity of their border, uh, of the leadership that's been shown by Zelensky. And by the way, not just Zelensky, And what's so impressive to me about it is you know, ordinary people, um, the soldiers are being braver than anyone expected, uh, even though they're outmatched and outgunned. And in, in any tragedy, and you know, when, whenever anything bad happens, I think you also have to, not just with young people, but with, with everybody, emphasize the heroes who rise to the moment. Some of the worst things that have ever happened, uh, including the shooting at Parkland, right, Tragic disaster, tears come to your eyes just contemplating the idea of a shooter killing students and teachers at a at a public school in Florida. But from that, so you can't just talk about that. From that, you had all these young people who are who are still in the public eye today, who are talking not just about gun violence but also about other issues. You know, leaders leaders are born in moments of crisis, even when they're teenagers.
0: Yeah, Preet, I'm curious. You mentioned your dad. Um, how has being an immigrant factored into your job as a dad of three
1: you know you know i think parenting is parenting and you know if you're a parent in india or a parent in america or a parent of somebody who was born in india and came to america there's a lot of you know (laughs) there's the little kids can be terrorists as we we said at the beginning of the conversation but a couple of things one you know the way i think about being an immigrant is that i owe a lot to america Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of debate about the degree to which you criticize your country and I certainly think we can be better, but but boy, I love the United States of America, and I say that unabashedly all the time. And and one of the reasons I spent 17 and a half years in public service and continued in that service up until I was fired, <laughs> like thrown out of the building, by, by President Trump, by President yes. then President yes. Trump, yeah. was I felt that America gave me so much, I wanted to give back to the country. And so I've emphasized to my kids who are, you know, older now. Uh, my oldest is about to be twenty-one, and I have a nineteen-year-old a 17 year old is public service. And I'm proud of the fact that they're engaged in, you know, the civic issues of the day in America, around the world. They care a lot about what's going on and they have inspired me to, you know, to be active as well. They took me to the women's March, uh, back in 2017. And then, you know, to other demonstrations after George Floyd was killed. So I think being an immigrant means you owe a lot to the country that adopted you. Um, I think also what it means is you don't want your children to lose touch with you know, what their heritage is. And you know, we have, we have a very mixed heritage. I, I, my, my children have one Sikh grandparent, one Hindu grandparent, one Jewish grandparent, and one Muslim grandparent. Wow. Which I think if you I'm jack doing, off every box. Yeah, which, which I think if I'm doing the math correctly makes them Episcopalian. <laughs> <laughs> the more difficult conversation was sitting down to dinner with my kids five years ago and saying, you know, I got to tell you something. Um, I've been invited to to Trump Tower to meet with Donald Trump, who was going to ask me to stay on <laughs> as U.S. attorney. And first, I thought it was a joke. <laughs> and my my daughter asked very point like why Why would you?" And it's a great question. Uh, and it's a little bit hard to explain to them that I did not think of myself as working for the president or serving the president. I didn't think of myself as working for or serving Barack Obama. And Barack Obama actually once, when we had a big photo op with all the U.S. attorneys in the country in front of him, he made it a point. It sounds quaint now, but, you know, Mm -hmm. Barack Obama, when he was president, said, like, so I appointed you, the Senate confirmed you, but you don't answer to me, you don't work for me, you don't serve me, you serve the people, and you serve the Constitution, and I really believe that. Um, It was naive, and it lasted seven weeks, because then Donald Trump started calling me, and I thought that was inappropriate, and then I was, you know, told to go. But I just explained, and I think, you know, maybe I can interpose a question to to Lisa here. How much do we underestimate young people's ability to understand complex things?
2: I think tremendously. And one of the things that is extraordinary about young people, and I would say especially teenagers, is they get to the bottom line very fast. Um, Teenagers have, I think, x-ray vision for people's (laughs) souls. And I think it's sometimes why people don't like teenagers, is that teenagers can see right through situations and right through people. And um, I'll put it this way, you can BS a grown-up, you can BS a little kid, but you actually cannot pull the wool over the eyes really? of a teenager. I have found that to be true. Then why aren't and so they in I,
1: office? We should put them in office. Here.
2: I know, I know. Well, it's like you say, the Parkland teenagers have been so powerful because they're so clear. They don't get caught up in the vagaries of things. They go right for the heart of things. So I think teenagers have tremendous power in this way, but also younger kids do too. One of the things we've talked about on this podcast is that six-year-olds are incredibly moral in their approach to the world. They become very, very aware of right and wrong, and sometimes actually to a rigid degree. Um, a lot of times people feel like having a six-year-old is like living with church lady. Like they can't get anything right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the parents get in the car, and the kid's like,
1: put on your seatbelt. They're like, but is there some just paradox there? The six-year-olds aren't, don't six-year-olds also steal from the cookie jar and, <laughs> well, do, they, and, and punch their sister in the face <laughs> they, and do that sort of thing?
2: They can, but they really are starting to have an awareness that what they're doing is wrong. Whereas if you're under the age of six, usually the view of morality is if you don't get caught, you're good to go. As soon as you're age six, you do have a sense of there's a right and wrong that goes with you everywhere you go. And I think that that just intensifies as kids' age. And teenagers are very clear-eyed about what they think is right and wrong. And I think a lot of parents, myself included, I have an 11-year-old daughter and an 18-year-old daughter a lot of parents, I feel like what you were describing about your kids getting you to the Women's March, my kids hold my feet to the fire about what I say, how I say it, if I'm being as inclusive as I need to be, if I'm, you know, I have learned more from them about what it means to be a broad-minded, inclusive human being than any of my own training or other look Oh, look, the world,
1: the world is changing. And the first person I go to is my daughter. Can you explain why people yeah. think this? Or why it's important to use this kind of language? Mm. As opposed to this other kind of language that I grew up with and thought, and always thought was appropriate. Yeah. And and we have you know really good open conversations about. I have another question for you because, um, which is a little bit off topic, but what age group among children is the most self-absorbed?
2: Oh. Ah. Okay. Is it the baby? This is.
1: Mm.
2: Well, a baby by their nature, because the world begins and ends you know at what they can perceive. And here's the hard thing. I adore teenagers, and I tend to be entirely complimentary of them. But the reality is that teenagers, by their nature, are unusually egocentristic. And oh. I always resisted this characterization of them. I always mm. felt like, oh, no, don't don't trash teenagers. Everybody loves to trash teenagers. And then I had an experience that made it impossible for me to entirely set this to the side. And it's a terrible story, but it was very illuminating. So I consult at a school one day a week. I practice and I write and I get to do this fabulous podcast with Rena, But one day a week I consult at a school. And years ago, we had a student who was killed in an accident. She was a junior and it was just a freak accident and it happened. And a couple of months later, I was walking down the hall and a pack of juniors stopped me. And they were like, Dr. Damore, we have to talk to you. The AP English curriculum has too many stories about death. And we are having a very hard time reading these stories in light of our friend's death. And I said to them, I hear you. Can I throw a possibility by you now that you have experienced grief and bereavement? Is there any possibility that these stories will take on a whole new meaning to you that you could not have possibly accessed if you had not been through this experience yourself? So I was enormously pleased with my response. They were appalled by what I said, <laughs> oh. it was immediately clear that for me to put their grief on the level with grief that has ever happened to anyone else in the history of being a human yeah. was <laughs> offensive to them. And I don't think yeah. I ever got my cred back with that pack. Mm.
1: Can I ask another question? Cause this has been in my mind for a long time. So I think a lot about uh, corruption, what makes decent people do bad things the theme of my work, it's not necessary mm-hmm. to understand mm-hmm. if you're a prosecutor, but if you're a thinking person and a curious person about human behavior, you think about it, and I get asked about it a lot, right? And and I've asked other people who probe corruption and, and bad conduct the question, you know, what is the quality of a person that you have found in the course of your study, research, evaluation that, that, that most protects someone from falling into misbehavior and corruption and cheating and stealing and, and all of that and Empathy. the best and the best answer I want to tell you the, the best answer yeah. I've ever heard was from Michael Lewis, who was writing he you know, was written a lot of great books, and he said it's the quality of being self-possessed mm-hmm. self-possession, which is something you know that overlaps with independence and and not caring what the crowd thinks so much, but but it's a little bit more about. Comfort with yourself, comfort with your own morality, and and those people resist the mob better than others. That probably is an attribute of a lot of the people in this book, but we don't talk about it. We talk about courage and heroism. We don't talk about self-possession. Hmm. Do you have a thought about that?
2: Well, I don't disagree, though I would go to empathy as the protective force. Mm-hmm. That keeps people from doing wrong things to other people. Because when we think about things like sociopaths, right? That's back in my neighborhood. They yeah, have none the of that. In your neighborhood. They are fascinated by how you get over on people. And they put the full weight of their intellect behind trying to figure out how to get over on people. And what's missing from that picture is that getting over on people harms people. And for most people, that's enough to stop them from doing it. You know, we could all think of ways to exploit others but the thing that gets between us and doing it is the yeah. fact that we don't want to harm anybody. So the more we cultivate empathy, all good things happen. And it also, I think, reduces the chance that your child will do things that are wrong things.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's sort of two categories of people. They're the people who do the bad things. They're the sociopaths. They're the leaders of bad movements. But then, as we all know from history, some of which is is relevant to the character, the character, the people in the book, most of those bad people can't get away with what they do unless there are masses of generally decent people who just go along. yeah um, mm. and that's where I think self-possession comes in. How do you resist the crowd? when everyone is saying we need to go, you know, do this bad thing? well, i guess i should I should do it too. Look we've seen this question about how you know why some of them do and some of them don't is, I think, ever fascinating.
2: You know one of the real challenges is when a movement comes along that catches people up within it something about that movement is telling them a story that helps them make sense of their world. It may not be a true mm. story. It may not be a kind story. But I'm much, much better at thinking at the level of the individual than the group. That's how my brain was trained. And so when I, know, when I think about an individual who gets caught up in something that we can see from the outside is, for lack of a better word, a bad idea, I can't help but think that something about that story in that movement Is meeting a need for that person. And we need to know what need is being met if we want to work against people
0: getting caught up in those movements. Um, We're going to pause, take a quick break. And on the other side, we're going to talk about COVID and teens. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Ask Lisa podcast.
2: Did you know that most bedding is made with harsh chemicals like formaldehyde, synthetic pesticides, and toxic dyes? Luckily, one company is changing this standard for good. Bowling Branch Sheets, which you know I love, uses the rarest 100% organic cotton that's traceable from family farm to your family home. I have had my Bowling Branch Sheets for a while now, and I love them. They feel like butter. In fact, I am so used to them now that when I travel, as I often do for work, I take my Bowling Branch pillowcase with me and I put it on the pillow in the hotel room so I can enjoy that softness at least on my face even when I'm not sleeping in my own bed. Sleep better at night with the softest sheets from Boland Branch. Get 15% off your first order when you use the promo code ASKLISA at BolinBranch.com. That's Boland Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com. Promo code ASKLISA. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
1: Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands.
0: Welcome back to the Ask Lisa Podcast. We're joined by author and legal expert Preet Barara. Preet's got a new children's book out, Justices, a Guide for Young Truth Seekers. Preet, I want to ask you about your time under COVID with your kids. What was it like? You had teenagers.
1: So the coronavirus is terrible. COVID is terrible. We've lost so many people. Yeah. And there's so much suffering and, you know, disengagement with people. But you know, but there are some silver linings for some people you know when when the world shut down in march of 2020 what followed was day after day after day of my wife and i and all three of our kids at the dinner table every meal i counted i think we had, we had an unbroken streak of all five I and mean, my daughter by the way was in college we had to we had to go get her from college because college went remote and then my two boys were in high school still and so they were still with us but you know the ordinary course of life which is i have events and i have talks and i have travel and my wife is very busy doing various things and the kids have school and they go see friends we went from that you know and, you know occasional you know one or two nights on uh, during the week or on the weekend having dinner together we had 105 dinners and i count 105 <laughs> consecutive mm. dinners and they were not short and you know we had the luxury of time every night to talk about what's going on in the world to tell stories that you know, from my childhood or my wife's childhood, uh, play games. You know, twenty questions. You know, whatever the case. May be. So, you know, at a time when lots of terrible things were happening, you know, when when I'm when I'm old or older, uh, years from now, I'm going to think back on those on those dinners in a very fond way. Should I feel guilty about that?
2: No, I I think you know you didn't cause this pandemic. We all had to find our way through it, and I actually think I've heard from a lot of people that they've struggled with questions about. Can I enjoy aspects of this? Can I even have a nice time right now? And one of the things that has come up on this podcast is that one of the lessons from positive psychology is that the presence of the negative doesn't mean the absence of the positive. And especially in the context of so much negative, it's the positive that fills us up. It's the positive that makes it possible to bear through the hard time and an incredibly long hard time. So rather than feeling guilty about the positives that any of us have been able to enjoy or can enjoy going forward, I would want people to soak them up and really um, savor them, because there is so much heart in the world that we need to try to be equal to, and that's the only
0: way we're going to be able to do it.
1: No, I think think that's right. I hope that's right.
0: I I do feel guilty of all the chocolate and... (laughs) Bottles of red wine, I consume that I'm still trying to work off at this point. Um, But Lisa, you know, we talk so much on the podcast about mental health issues. And Mm -hmm. I I just feel like we're all going through something at this point Mm -hmm. through this pandemic and trying to cope with it. And the White House just came up with some new guidelines that were released this month.
2: Yeah, the White House just put out um, an ambitious plan to try to really shore up the provision of mental health in the U.S. And, um, of course, I couldn't have been happier to see it. And it includes all sorts of things for people of all ages, including um, stuff for kids, trying to enhance the service provision within schools, early childhood things. And also things around the lines of like mental health parity, meaning that insurance companies are going to be hopefully expected to cover mental health in the same way they cover physical health. You know, if you have, if you need chemo, you get as much chemo as you need. If you need psychotherapy, you can have five sessions. And this has always been a problem. And Preet, I wonder, do you have thoughts along these lines about sort of, you think at big governmental scale, is there more we can be doing, should be doing to help support people?
1: Look, I'm not a mental health expert. But I've come across this issue, obviously, in my, in my work. We, you know, among the various cases we did, we, we interposed ourselves in a lawsuit against the city of New York and the Department of Corrections with respect to Rikers Island and the treatment of adolescents. And it's not gotten better. Uh, unfortunately, you, you hear stories in the news about how terrible it is. But one of the most stunning findings to my mind was that I, I think the figure was something like 43% of, of the younger people uh, who were being held at Rikers Island had some mental health issue, forty-three mm-hmm. mm-hmm. wow. percent, and and a lot of crime and a lot of social issues that we talk about come back to the lack of provision of mental health services. And you know, I, you know, I know I know friends, and we have you know members of the family and friends over the course of years who need help, and you know, in many of those cases, <clears throat> they're they're people of means. Uh, a lot of mental health care providers are not covered by insurance, or they don't take insurance because, you know, they're so inundated with demand for their services, and it adds up. It's an enormous amount of money, mm-hmm. and some of these things that people are seeking treatment for, you know, are, are important, but they're but they're not. How do I say this? But but they're not so debilitating as to be ruinous if not immediately treated, and you have people in in the country through no fault of their own who have potentially you know ruinous uh, mental health issues that are just not being treated at all yeah. and it's sending people to prison and it's sending people to the morgue uh, so I'm all in favor if, if you if you think the plan is a good one, that's great. I haven't studied it closely but but I think we are woefully woefully inadequate in thinking about mental health We, we do not treat those issues that depending on on the on the particularities on the particulars of it can be much more devastating than an ordinary physical health issue.
2: Yeah. And in fact, I mean, talking about silver linings in the pandemic, if the fact that we all now talk about mental health, there's an awareness of a mental health crisis, there's governmental support for really overhauling how we talk and think about mental health, the kind of care
0: that's provided, how it gets funded, that would be a great outcome from the pandemic. Preetha, I want to ask you, you know, in this book, you talk a little bit about how it's never too early to talk about fairness. And most kids, you experience what it's like, fairness or or not fair, with your siblings very early on in preschool. How do you hope this book will help kids understand justice? Because sometimes when you get justice, I'm sure you've litigated many cases where the outcome isn't necessarily guaranteed guaranteed to be the one that you want.
1: Yeah, so I think a couple of things. Justice, you know, people ask me the question, what does justice mean to you? And, and I always say, you know, thousands and thousands of humans have spent lifetimes studying the issue and no one fully agrees. And it goes back to before the Greeks, right? So lifetimes of study by, you know, lawyers, jurists, moral philosophers. Um, Aristotle was not the first person to contemplate the issue. Um, I do think with respect to children, a couple of things. One, as I've mentioned, you know, the book does not, do like an exegesis on, you know, what justice is Mm -hmm. as a concept. It sort of introduces you to the concept by uh, making available to you the stories and the identities of some people who fought for justice. So for example, a child will see Malala and it's a little bit disturbing uh, and we don't depict anything insensitive, but as people may, you know, Malala was shot in the head, left for dead because she was fighting for the right of children to get an education. And I imagine that the average American child would wonder aloud, like, what, what are you talking about? Um, what do you mean girls are not allowed to get educated in some parts of the world? Like, girls are people just like, just like boys are. And that would awaken in them, you know, not just a sense of justice, but in fact, sometimes first, the sense of injustice, right? You know, it's not always, it's not always clear to me And maybe, you you know, the answer to this question, Lisa, as a developmental matter, you know, what comes first, people's sense of justice or people's sense of outrage, unfairness, and injustice, which then leads to the concept of justice? My conjecture would be it's maybe the latter. And to the extent it's the latter, the way I think parents might explain these issues is, you know, there there was a wrong that was happening. There was slavery. Slavery was this terrible thing in which human beings, because of what they looked like, were treated as property like your table and that's got to be shocking to a child because it actually makes <laughs> actually makes no sense and then you explain you know that's a bad thing you know that's injustice and what would be justice well the elimination of that practice and here's some people who fought to eliminate that practice and we owe a large debt of gratitude to them so i think i think individually with respect to each of those stories uh, and, and what the wrong that was being, almost in every instance, there's some wrong, there's some injustice that was being fought against, not just some, you know, happy society and, and, a, and, a, and somebody stood out as, in a generalized way to advocate for even greater fairness and redistribution or, you know, whatever the case may be. These are people actively fighting evil things.
2: I love the way you put it. And I, I my hunch is that you're absolutely right. Um, okay, so easy question. Uh-oh. Um, That's famous last words. I know, I know. Okay, so we parents, we want to raise good citizens. We want to raise kids who understand justice and democracy and do what's right. How can we be helping? What can parents be doing?
1: I think if people don't feel good about themselves, they're more likely to be you know, drawn along in some bad enterprise because they think maybe that will make me feel... Better about myself, like be, you know, belonging is very important to people. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but but if you but if you get up uh, and involved in a bad crowd, whether it's people who are storming the Capitol, or you know, or, or, or anything else, the thing that prevents that from happening in part is your own self of, sense of self worth. Um, you know, you belong to yourself before you belong to anyone else, and I, I, I believe that.
2: I love that, that's a beautiful, you belong to yourself before you belong to anyone else. I love that.
0: Brief is just someone who really believes so strongly in democracy, justice, our legal system, journalism. So I couldn't imagine a better person to come on the podcast today to talk about this and to write this book. I absolutely love it. This is the gift you want to give at everybody's birthday parties. I'm telling you, just order a bunch of copies. You don't have to worry about gifts for birthday parties because birthday parties are coming back now.
1: They are. They right? They're coming absolutely. back.
0: Well, the book is called Justices, A Guide for Young Truth Seekers. And be sure to tune into Preet's um, show, which is fantastic. His podcast called Stay Tuned, where you can get more of his insider legal takes on the world. And Preet, by the way, if you want to meet him in person, he's got a, a couple of live events that are really interesting. Preet, tell us about that.
1: So we have a live podcast, the first one since before the pandemic. It's been a couple of years. Uh, and we're doing that on March 31st at the Town Hall in Midtown Manhattan. Uh, that's a Thursday evening. And we have an amazing guest, someone I've admired for a long time bring some levity and also some seriousness to the conversation, Uh, actor and director Ben Stiller
0: will be the guest.
1: So if you want to come hang out with me and Ben Stiller, uh, go to cafe.com slash events.
0: Fantastic. We'll have all of this, including how to buy Preet's book, in our show notes. So be sure to check it out. Preet Bharara, so grateful you could join us, Preet.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you
0: so much. And thank you for the work you've done. Thank you. Oh, it was so great to have Preeth on. Lisa, what do you have for us for parenting to go this week?
2: You know, as Preeth was talking about adults going along with things that they shouldn't do, I was thinking how much it's true that sometimes kids and teenagers do the same thing. And to help our kids stay on the right track, I think one thing that we can say to them is, whatever else happens, you have to feel all right with yourself. So don't do anything that you're not going to be able to to feel comfortable with or that's gonna keep you up at night. I think that's a way that we can continue to drive home the message about what it means to do the
0: right thing. Never know what's gonna register in the minds of kids. It's great to keep talking about these things. Absolutely. And we're excited about next week because we're gonna have an actual three-time Olympic mom on our show. Three-time mom, three-time Olympian. Kind of impressive, don't you think? (laughs) Super impressive. We're gonna talk about raising an athlete. I'll see you back next week. See you next week. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe to the Ask Lisa podcast so you get the episodes just as soon as they drop. And send us your questions to asklisa at drlisademore.com. And now a word from our lawyers. The advice provided on this podcast does not constitute or serve as a substitute for professional psychological treatment, therapy, or other types of professional advice or intervention. If you have concerns about your child's well being, consult a physician or mental health professional. If you're looking for additional resources, check out Lisa's website at drlisademore.com. We'll see you next week.